Well, welcome to Conversations That Matter with Immigrant Legal Defense and Fresno State's Dream Success Center. I'm your host today, Gabby Encinas, and I serve as the coordinator of the Dream Success Center at Fresno State. Joining us in our second episode is Barbara Pinto, co-founder and managing attorney with Immigrant Legal Defense. Both Barbara and I are so delighted to talk with our guest today, Araceli Martinez-Olguin. And let me share with you a little bit about um, Araceli's work. Um, Araceli focuses on protecting immigrants' civil and workplace rights in the face of immigration enforcement and on defending the employment authorization and immigration relief available through the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. She's a seasoned impact litigator who has worked for over 15 years to advance and defend immigrants' rights. Prior to joining the National Immigration Law Center, Araceli worked for the U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights, ACLU National, as a member of the Women's Rights Project, and then the Immigrants' Rights Project and Legal Aid at Work, formerly the Legal Aid Society Employment Law Center, in the National Origin Immigration and Language Rights Program. Araceli also served as a law clerk to U.S. District Court Judge David Briones. Araceli received her Juris Doctorate from the University of California Berkeley Law School and earned her undergraduate degree from Princeton University's School of Public and International Affairs. Araceli taught Spanish for lawyers as a lecturer at Berkeley Law for several semesters and is a 2010 recipient of the Honorable Felton E. Henderson Social Justice Prize, which is awarded by Berkeley Law. Before law school, Araceli taught bilingual kindergarten through Teach for America in Oakland, California, and is herself a Mexican immigrant. She sits on the executive board of the American Constitution Society's Bay Area Lawyers Chapter and is president and chair of the board of the East Bay La Raza Lawyers Association Scholarship Fund. Wow, thank you so much for joining us, Araceli. It's my pleasure, Gabby. It's wonderful to be with you all today. Thank you, Gabby, for that introduction. And um, we're excited that you are hosting the podcast today. Today, we will focus our podcast on DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which is an immigration program that was implemented in 2012 by the Obama-Biden administration, and which was made possible by the advocacy of undocumented youth themselves. DACA is available to certain eligible youth and adults that entered the United States before age 16, have been continuously residing in the U.S. since June 2007, and meet the other educational age and presence requirements. DACA recipients are granted work authorization for two years and protection against deportation and detention. Individuals can renew their DACA every two years as long as they remain eligible. We've had the DACA program for almost nine years and the program has been at risk of termination several times now, especially during the Trump administration. We've seen several lawsuits challenging the efforts to end the program, and we're very excited to have Araceli as our guest today, as she and her organization, National Immigration Law Center, or NILC, have fought for many years to protect DACA and the rights of all immigrants. Araceli will now share with us her litigation and advocacy efforts and experiences to protect the DACA program. Welcome, Araceli. Thank you for joining us. We're happy to do that, Barbara. Um, so 
yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the the challenges that DACA has faced, right? Um, as, as Barbara laid out, um, the Obama-Biden administration uh, announced DACA in June of 2012 and applications started to be accepted that fall. And through the rest of that of the administration, the program um, went on, right? There's, there's hiccups in the administration, but for the most part, like the Obama-Biden administration worked with uh, immigrant advocates to try and make sure that implementation, that applications, that all of that went relatively smoothly. And, you know, it's worth pointing out that the National Immigration Law Center um, has been a part of, you know, it, it was among the first folks uh, advocating for the DREAM Act well before DACA came around and that NILK along with others were part of the were part of those in communications with the administration to ensure that administration of the program of DACA that it really was accessible for people. Um, but let's right, like let's fast forward all the way to the early days of the Trump administration. What now feels, thankfully, um, like something behind us. But yet, let's let's all recall for a minute um, that really what we got from the Trump administration in early days was a lot of hot and cold. Right. We would be told on the one hand, the like you know we love Trump himself is like I love these kids and advising the secretary to um, to close the program. And the next day, there is an announcement from the secretary of then Secretary Dukes, Secretary Dukes issues a memo saying, you know, yes, we're going to get rid of the program. Enter uh, lots of advocates, right? Like one of the things to note is that there were no fewer than nine cases, nine different lawsuits filed all across the country by state governments, by local governments, by immigrants' rights advocates representing DACA recipients themselves, representing membership organizations like we do. We represent Make the Road New York, CHILA, the Coalition for Humane Immigration, uh, in Los Angeles, I think is what it stands for, right? Like folks, Casa de Maryland, right? Like folks jumped up in defense of DACA. And essentially those lawsuits were to say this rescission, this attempt by the Trump administration is unfounded and it violates basic principles of how we govern and what we are, what we as a society are supposed to expect from our government when it changes its policies. Right, and now is that these lawsuits, on the one hand, certainly folks are very clear, all the advocates are very clear about DACA's legality. None of us doubt DACA's legality, but the lawsuits themselves were never very much about DACA's legality. Instead, it was more about making sure that the Trump administration complied with basic procedures that they needed to if they wanted to change the policy. We were essentially saying, this: these lawsuits are not about whether or not you can eliminate DACA, but that if you want to do it, there are certain things that you have to do in order to achieve that, including giving a well-reasoned explanation for why, which wasn't there, right? The, the memo issued by Secretary Dukes was this sad little two-page thing that just said, well, the secretary, the attorney general tells me that it's illegal, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna get rid of it. So all of these lawsuits, you know, five in California, two in New York, two in DC, two in Maryland, all of these go. Now, everyone remembers, and, and one of the first things that happens is that in January of 2018, 
the court in the Northern District of California issues an injunction, right? And what that means is essentially the court says, we agree with the immigrants advocates that the Trump administration has wrongly uh, tried to stop this program. So we are not going to let them do that. But the court draws this really interesting distinction and fine line between everybody who already has DACA and those who were aging into the program or who were in the pipeline with pending applications to get DACA, right? Because folks who had DACA and were renewing, the court found that they had stronger reliance interests, right? They were going to affirmatively lose something, the court says, they were going to affirmatively lose something, whereas the folks who were still applying, like, they hadn't yet obtained it, so they didn't have the same right to assert that they were losing something. Um, and so and that injunction is issued by the Northern District of California. Of all of these lawsuits, almost every single court ends up agreeing, right, in slightly different ways. They don't say exactly the same thing as each other, but they all reach the same result in terms of the immigrants' rights advocates are right, the Trump administration was wrong, with one court being the exception it gets reversed by the Court of Appeals all before we get to the Supreme Court, right? Like, but that's what you have. And for a good long while, that's why you have DACA renewals proceeding. But no one who is aging into the program who would be otherwise eligible being able to apply for the program. And, you know, one, a number that I like to hold close to my heart, and I no longer have it exactly, but I remember it's upwards of 60,000, right? That um, as a as a result of the orders from the from the court in California, the government was required to keep providing data to the to the folks challenging the rescission to show that they were continuing to process applications, right? And part of what we know from that data is that between the time that the court issued the injunction requiring the program to stay open, renewals to continue from January 2018 all the way through the Supreme Court's decision, a good extra 60,000 people have been able to renew that would not otherwise have been able to do so absent, uh, absent the injunction. So, so that's, that's the number I'm like, I'm like, that's the meaningful, that's at least one marker of, of sort of what that means um, in terms of what the purpose of that injunction was just to go ahead and keep that program going. Going back and it, it seems like DACA has been um, just a series of complicated litigation going moving forward. But Araceli, can you tell us a little bit about your role? What what has been your position? Um, you know, I like our audience to understand where you have played a role in what has been going on, particularly with the Supreme Court decision. Can you share a little bit of background on that and what your role has been um, with you know litigating DACA? Sure. Um, so. When the Supreme Court granted cert on the cases coming up, there were eight of us, eight cases, eight different cases that ended up before the Supreme Court. And one of the things that no one talks about, but I think is super important to remember and something you know to highlight to highlight is that ultimately, right, DACA, as much as we talk about it as this creation of the Obama-Biden administration, the truth is that immigrant youth had been advocating for it and the DREAM Act, like, right, like, it was not something that was, it, it wasn't given by the administration, it was very much fought for, hard fought for by immigrant youth. And 
that is no different than the ultimate Supreme Court decision, right? Like I, I think when we think about what's happened, what happened at the Supreme Court and the outcome that we've seen, it's important to think both about all of the things that happened in the courtroom and in the briefs and all the things that the lawyers do. Yes, that's lovely. But the other thing that is that is key and important to remember is that at the same time, there was a there was a campaign. Right, Nil, the National Immigration Law Center, I and, and two of my call and a handful of my colleagues worked with folks at United We Dream and Forward.us and all sorts of all sorts of other great national organizations to create home is here. Right. And those are the folks that's that that's what leads to that really spectacular moment outside of the Supreme Court steps immediately after the oral argument. Right. Like every time I watch it, there's this amazing moment that the minute the oral argument is over folks come out and you hear right there's a rally outside and you have this call and response between the folks on the supreme court steps and the rally part of what we did leading up to the oral argument was work to ensure that as many daca recipients got into oral argument that day, right? We, as, as you all may know, it's not easy to get into the Supreme Court for, for, these, uh, for these really high visibility arguments. If you're an attorney, there's a line just for the lawyers. But if you're a member of the pu general public, it is not easy to get in, um, and so we worked. We worked with folks as part of as part of Home is Here to coordinate line sitting, so that the so that we could guarantee that all of the named plaintiffs in our lawsuit, right? So as part of the Bataya Vidal case, I represent Martin Bataya Vidal, Antonio Alarcón, Eliana Fernandez, Carlos Vargas, Carolina Fang Fang. And and also, um, actually, no, those are the original plaintiffs. There, we've added some plaintiffs, but at the time of the Supreme Court lawsuit, we represent those individuals plus the organization Make the Road New York. And we made sure that all of our plaintiffs plus all of the DACA recipients plus the named plaintiffs in all of the other lawsuits plus any DACA recipient who had supplied a declaration for the state governments, for Santa Clara County, that they got to be in the courtroom. And I've only ever been in a Supreme Court oral argument one other time before this. It's a weird place to be in that, like, you see people, all the reporters that cover the Supreme Court for the New York Times or like these high power folks in law are there, right? Like Nina Totenberg and the, the guy who covers it for the Post and like, and, and Adam Liptick from the New York Times. Like, it's a, like, they're all there. And I was, what I found ultimately most, one of the most impactful for me was being able to look over at some point and see all of my plaintiffs plus the other people that I had met along the way. Right. Yeah. And, and that's so interesting to listen to that, what it was like to be in the court. And as I'm hearing you describe this, how is it that you chose the plaintiffs and, and what was that like for them as well to be in there as you're describing the scene and how that all happened? You know, in conversation with our clients about it, um, I think they know that it that it is a rare thing for people impacted by Supreme Court decisions to be the ones to sort of be sitting in that courtroom listening to them. And I will share with you that 
we cared a great deal about ultimately making sure that the Supreme Court justices to look at our clients and see them and look at them in the face um, as they're listening to all of these arguments. Um, I mean, ultimately, what 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 is what I know about about not just the plaintiffs in our case, but the plaintiffs across all the cases is that really you're you're talking about a group of folks who have who know that they can play a role just by stepping up and like, right, they have carried the burden of this litigation, some of them for now almost five years, right? Some of them, like our, our named plaintiff, Martin, um, right, like he filed the lawsuit, the lawsuit that became Bataya Vidal uh, versus, uh, versus, you know, the, the whatever, the, the Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, because the name changes, right? But like, it started as a lawsuit that was just on his behalf against the government for having taken away his three-year work authorization under deferred action, under extended DACA, right? You all will remember that like for a hot minute, there was extended DACA. And we all, for like for a moment, there was also deferred action for the parents of Americans that doesn't survive. Um, but Martin was one of those folks who had originally been granted a three-year a three-year work authorization document and then the government clawed it back and so he started just by saying hey that was mine like what is but also looking very much not not only for himself but for anyone who'd had that work authorization clawed back um and it's at and as that case is pending and moving um sessions makes the announcement uh and and Secretary Duke makes the announcement that they're going to terminate DACA. And so in the end, what I know, what I know we cared about in, with this lawsuit is, right, keep, um, is, is, at, is he, Martin was right, willing and able to stand up and say, no, you can't have my DACA. Um, and, and having Make the Road New York, right, it's in, for us, it's important to have also these membership organizations because it is, in, it is one way, you know, the, the courts, are tricky in that you sometimes just have to think through who your plaintiffs are to ensure that you can get the relief to extend to everybody, right? And, and there's a degree in which as we have these conversations with our clients and with the organizations, like you really in the end, you're, you're looking for folks, you're finding folks who understand what they're about to take on because litigation is hard right like forget the lawyers like it's it's for the plaintiffs for any plaintiff choosing to litigate and choosing to litigate against the federal government mind you right like they are keenly aware that they spent four years actively fighting against a hostile federal government that very much made that made them very aware that every day they wanted nothing more than to get than to push them out of this country, which is their home, right? And, and, and just, uh, it makes me think about all the students that we serve at Fresno State and how anybody can make a difference and what heroes they are to work with um, you, Araceli, and the other organizations. It just, um, it, it reminds me of the power of of DACA individuals and how they're fighting for everybody. Is, is that what you found? And, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see what, they feel through the litigation process and how you felt, um, you know, through the litigation process. One of the things that has always struck me and have, and that I've always, that I've adored about 
by individual clients. And, you know, it's, it's worth noting that as part of Home is Here, one of the things that we did was bring together all of the plaintiff suits, all of the DACA recipients, all the declarants, all these folks. Um, it was, it's a total of about 45 people, right? But like, as we're headed up to the Supreme Court, part of what we do is just get all of these folks in one room so they can actually just meet each other. Because otherwise, like, the California plaintiffs might never meet the New York plaintiffs, might not meet the, 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 the Maryland plaintiff, might not meet, right? So, so we get them all together. And part of what I always find compelling and moving is that, you know, I, I think that in this society, in this society that we're in, it's it's very easy, and I think we often expect and anticipate that people will be looking out for themselves, right? Like I think it's very, I think that in theory, it's very easy to anticipate that DACA recipients might be satisfied with just getting something for themselves, and in a way that has always moved me, um, my clients, and in those spaces. It, they're very keen on the fact that this is not just about them. It's about figure. This is not just about holding like, you know, it's not just my DACA. It's about making sure that other people have access to DACA. But and more importantly, that in the end, that we aren't that we aren't getting something for DACA recipients at the expense of their parents, at the expense of other folks in our community. Right. Like my clients. DACA recipients that I know and have had interactions with more than anyone are, are fe I feel like they're the ones who at least for to my mind coined this idea that right it's our parents who are the original dreamers so the idea that you would expect me to say I'll take mine but it's okay you don't have to give my parents something is off the table right and and it's one of the things that makes me so really proud to have gotten to do this work to continue to do this work with them. Absolutely. And that's what we hear from students and families. It's not about them. It's about all of us. And, and I'm just so proud um, to listen and to learn through you uh, what plaintiffs went through to fight for everybody, right? And we all we often forget um, that it's we're advocating for our parents, our families and the future of DACA, whatever that may be. So walk us through what happened with the DACA decision. And more importantly, as well, is how did DACA, the other DACA cases, interact with Batalla Vidal? Sure. So, you know, nine of them are up before the Supreme Court. So when the Supreme Court issues its decision, it is ruling on all of the on all of the cases that were before it. Um, and, you know, on June 18th, um, on June 18th, uh, 2020, uh, we get the decision. And I think to know, to, to know, you know, and ultimately we're looking at it and we all find out, right, the, the court finds five to four. Um, and with Chief Justice Roberts writing the opinion that, yes, the government failed to adequately explain, to give adequate reasons for why it was getting rid of DACA. And for that reason, the rescission is gone. The rescission wasn't valid. It's gone. And the Supreme Court gives the, it, it sends the question back to the Department of Homeland Security, right? Because again, the question before the court was, have you complied with the necessary procedures? The answer to that question was no, you have not complied with the necessary procedures to get rid of DACA. It doesn't say they can't get rid of it. It just says you have to do more. So it sends the question back to the Department of Homeland Security. You know, one, something that I learned uh, is that in lower courts, at the district court and the trial court, um, when a decision, when a court issues a decision, the decision is immediate, 
when you're before the Court of Appeal, including the Supreme Court, days before the rule goes into effect. So uh, before the ruling goes into effect. So yes, on June 18th, we found out that the rescission was out. But that doesn't mean that on June 19th, DACA reopened. We all know that now, right? Um, and part of that is because of that rule. There's this rule that it's like, no, no, you have to give the government, There's a they have an ability to ask for the Supreme Court to reconsider. People don't really do it, but the rules say you can, so you have to give them the time to do it. As that time is passing, there's one case of all, right, nine cases were at the Supreme Court, and the nine of us are all waiting for that time. We're twiddling our thumbs, waiting for that time to pass so that we can return to our judges and say, okay, like, let's see them do something. Um, but the one case that had not been granted, the one case that had not been consolidated with the others, they got sent back more quickly. So there's a hearing that happens in the District Court of Maryland where we all learn, and, and this hearing happens, I think it's early July, right? So a couple of weeks have gone by. We're all still waiting for the for the 20 some odd days to pass, but, but that judge brings them in and says, okay, what are you doing, right? The Supreme Court said, that this that this that this attempted that this attempted rescission was unlawful. So what are you doing? And so we learn from the federal government that they are putting new DACA applications, right? That they because because the ruling meant that every like it should have reopened. Renew um, initial applications should have been accepted. Like that should have just happened. Um, but we're finding out that the federal government is putting all of those. This, these are the words of like we're putting them quote unquote in a bucket, like we're holding them because we're still considering what to do next. At which point that judge, those lawyers and the rest of us as well who are all listening in, I like, what do you mean you're considering this? The Supreme Court has spoken. Now, again, we're still twiddling our thumb. We have to wait for our time to pass. So we still can't do anything at that moment. Um, but the minute that we can, like, right, that's that's the other thing that happens is like we are literally watching the clock for the time to pass. And the day that it passes, we write to the Second Circuit and say, please remand this to the trial court immediately. We need to get back there. They do. And the minute that we can, as soon as we can, we get ourselves in front of our judge in the Eastern District of New York and say, um, at, well, we, we, we write to get back in front. I'm jumping over in that as we saw, we were still waiting for these things to happen, an additional thing happened, right? We get, we get this hearing in front of the judge in Maryland in early July. And he wants them to come back and talk to him again. He's like, he's, he is upset. Like he is audibly, I couldn't see him because we were all, you know, it's, it's, it's the virus days, the pandemic days, we're all on the phone. So I didn't get to see the judge, but we could hear he's really upset to hear that the government isn't seemingly doing anything with these applications. And he asks them to come back to him with a plan and an explanation within, within I think, something like two weeks. And bef before coming back to him, that is when we all see the memo issued by then, quote unquote, acting secretary, uh, Chad Wolf, saying that they are, again, going to dismantle DACA. So that's to cut everything, that's to cut it off at the past. Now, you know, this is where we get into the fact that, you know, Chad Wolf 
you you all know this. This is part like the underlying theme of the Trump. One of the underlying themes. There are many underlying themes to the Trump administration. Like yes, there's the general anti-immigrant sentiment, but there's also their general unwillingness to govern as we as is required by many laws, including something called the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, the Homeland Security Act, and and the Appointments Clause of the Constitution. Those things together essentially say this, which is that it is it is the president who put people into these positions, right? The government, the excuse me, the president is the one who gets to nominate who's going to serve as secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. But those people are supposed to be confirmed by the Senate, right? The, the president doesn't get to just put people in there unilaterally. After, so you all, you know, just to give you the like the unnecessary government history, right? Secretary Duke resigned. Secretary Duke resigned, and Secretary Nielsen came in after her. Secretary Nielsen was a, was confirmed by the Senate. After she resigned, no one had been confirmed to serve as Secretary of Homeland Security. Back since like April 9th of 29th, like that. Yes, people had been serving. People had been serving in that role but none of them had been properly confirmed by the Senate. And so, you know, all of this mildly boring lesson in his, in government to say that, believe it or not, that's the argument we take to our judge in the Eastern District of New York, right? Chad Wolf, who is claiming to be the acting secretary of Homeland Security and in that capacity writes the memo that says, we're gonna get rid of DACA. We go back to the court and say, no, 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 he doesn't actually have the power to do that. He's not serving lawfully. This memo is unlawful. Um, and we amend our complaint. Like we go back to court and essentially push that. The other cases are similarly, everyone is on a slightly different clock depending on how quickly their, their different courts of appeal got things moving. So for example, just so it isn't lost, the folks in the California cases were also starting to make moves. We got there faster in part because our, our courts moved faster, but right. So what we have then is we brief that, right? We argue that we make these arguments and on November 14th, the court agrees with us on November 14th, on the 14th of last year, the court in the Eastern District of New York said, that's right, Wolf is not lawfully serving. That memo is, that memo isn't proper. Um, that memo doesn't have any, any force of law, but, you know, and counsel, I need you to tell me what are, what are the remedies that you want, right? How do we, how do we resolve this? So for another couple of weeks, we go back and forth with the court. And ultimately what we get from the court is, a, is, is several things, right? The court orders the government to set the memo aside. Um, and right, let's, let's talk for a hot minute about what the Wolf memo did, right? Because it looked essentially, it, it was trying to limit DACA in three key ways. It was saying that again, there would be, that they would accept no initial applications, right? No initial applications. Um, they are going to no longer grant no advanced parole and DACA was going to be only for one year instead of two years, but you were still going to play, have to pay the same amount of money, but it's in essentially doubling the cost of, of, main, 
uh, on, I'm sorry, July 28th. July, yes. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. From when that was announced, July 28th, 2020, until essentially December 4th, when we get another order from the court in the Eastern District of New York, for those five months, people who were renewing their DACA were only getting one year uh, EADs. And we know from information that, that the court, that we asked the court for the government to give us, we know that that's nearly 65,000 people. Um, and so part of the things we essentially asked the court to be sure to give us, the, to put into place remedies that undid all of that, right? That, um, and, and so, you know, here's, here's what, here's where we are today. Here's what should, this is what folks should have. Um, this is what should be happening. Right. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And absolutely. I'm sorry to cut you off, but Not at all. you know, I, I remember those months in the summer and what a high it was to learn about what the Supreme court had said, um, understanding that it was also very interesting decision um, at the same time and where we have been. And, you know, I've talked to many, many families that we serve uh, on my campus, on my home campus. And of course, throughout the CSU system, just, I mean, living through that, um, for many of our families was, what do we go? What do we do? How do we start? Do we start? Do we know? Don't start to submit new applications. And, um, and so it was just very, um, in, what an interesting time. Um, and um, for our families, listening to them and our students, it was just an em emotions of fear of what do we do? And it, it was just, well, so much uncertainty, so right? Yeah. So much uncertainty, which is the thing you expected. Like we all lived with that during the Supreme Court, like while we were waiting for the Supreme Court decision. Like I agree, there was a cert there was such uncertainty after a Supreme Court decision that just it didn't make sense. And it's not the way. It's certainly not the way that I think of. It, it's not at all what I expected post right. post Supreme Court decision, much less post good Supreme Court decision, right? <laughs> right? Like so, absolutely. Like for months, and and I remember this right. We had this back and forth with folks at UWD with our co counsel team of what is it that we're advising people to do right now, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, yes, there's a great Supreme Court decision, but we're but but it isn't clear. Right. But at the same time, being sure to highlight for folks that in in June, July, it wasn't clear that they would actually process initial applications. So, right. We were not telling people we were not telling people to run out and apply yet. We were telling people to like, you know, you're going to have to document that you've been in the United States for at least 13 years. So, like, get that stuff together, start finding like start re start looking into it if you think you qualify. Um, and by the way, it won't surprise you, right, that like some folks who had been ready to apply right before Jeff Sessions announced and, and Secretary Dukes announced that they were getting rid of DACA, those folks got their applications. Like, again, it, it, I, I, there were people who did submit immediately and had things rejected or who submitted for advance parole and had those requests rejected ultimately under the Wolf memo. Um, and some of those, and those are some of our new plaintiffs, right? Like we, we started out representing folks who had DACA, who already had DACA and were renewing their DACAs, their DACA, their DACA um, status, right? 
but in order to, to challenge the wolf memo, we purposefully sought out plaintiffs who had never ha who qualified for DACA, but who hadn't yet, who either hadn't been able to apply, one of our clients had applied and had it rejected in that window, um, right? Like that was how we were gonna make sure. And, and you know, one thing worth noting here is that um, the court recognized, like we are class counsel now, right? Like at the, when the court, when the court found that the Wolf Memo was unlawful, one of the other things that it did was certify a nationwide class of anyone who is DACA eligible, who, who was, who is, or will be DACA eligible to ensure that the government cannot in any way continue to implement the Wolf Memo against these folks. Right. It it sounds silly, but essentially the court said, yes, the National Immigration Law Center, Jerome and Frank Legal Services Organization at Yale Law School and Make the Road New York, you all now represent all 1.1 million DACA recipients and those who will be eligible for DACA. Um, and it and you are charged, we are charged with ensuring that the federal government does the basic thing of continuing to comply with the Napolitano memo that rolled out DACA in the first place back on June 15th, 2012. And that's so interesting. So now uh, on a February, 2021, <laughs> where we stand as it stands right now, um, we are encouraging if you qualify, go ahead and, and do your renewals and or uh, if you're a new applicant, please apply. And we are just so grateful in places like Fresno State to be working with Immigrant Legal Defense to assist our students and our families and, and what have you. Um, so now, I mean, it's not the end of DACA. In essence, we have this Texas case. Yeah, just what do we need to know about that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Especially now that we're over the Trump administration, we have a new administration. And so people are feeling that the program is safe and nothing's going to happen to it or have it take it away. And we've had favorable court decisions too up to this point. So here's here's the... I'm going to take us back to June 18th when we got the good Supreme Court decision. Um, part of what we were saying to folks was, look, we won, yay! But, right, with two big asterisks attached to it. Asterisks number one, um, the government hasn't yet said how it will comply with the Supreme Court decision. So hold tight to those initials. Start doing your research for your initial applications. Like, let's see what they do. Right, that's asterisk number one, which we've discussed. All right, that this, what you all are bringing up, rightly so, the Texas case, that is giant asterisk number two. So you'll remember that we talked a little bit about the fact that you know these nine cases defending DACA are all about making sure that the government complies with laws that are in place for how we change policies, okay? None of these, no one who's litigating those cases has any doubts about the legal the legality of DACA. Let's let's just put that out there. Like no one here doubts the like DACA is lawful. Um, but then that brings us to the Texas case, right? The Texas case is the state of Texas suing the federal government saying DACA is not lawful. And we, the state of Texas, along with nine other states 
um, right? So the state of Texas plus this other handful of states are saying we are harmed. Imagine that um, we are harmed um, by by having to ha by having to have DACA by having to issue driver's licenses to DACA recipients by a host of other things, right? We are harmed, and so you know. Um, Please, you know, we believe that this is we are harmed. We believe this is unlawful. That it violates um, that that the that the executive branch, the Department of Homeland Security, has exceeded its authority, and that it contradicts um, with immigration law. Right? And you know, this case was filed. That case was also filed back in May of 2018. That case has been around as long, if not longer, than these cases defending DACA. In fact. Part of the part of the story I didn't share, but is worth noting, just to show the constant interplay between these lawsuits, is that Jeff Sessions, when he sends the letter to Secretary Duke saying, "I believe this is unlawful," sometime a short time before, he had gotten a letter from these states saying, "Unless you get rid of DACA, we're going to sue you." So they do, right? He does. This is the, this is how these pieces all go together. He does get he does issue the memo to get rid of DACA, but then the advocates keep it alive in the courts. So the the bads the, the the hater states, as I sometimes refer to them, right? The the adverse states proceed with their lawsuit. Now I want you to imagine this: you've got the states suing, saying, "Hey, get rid of DACA," to the federal government that is <gasps> trying to get rid of DACA. That does not sound like what we do in courts, right? We have different. We have people usually on different from positions. So, in a very important, for, you know, very useful and powerful and important, uh, the state of New Jersey, rep it it has it represents a consortium of states, the state of New Jersey, and more importantly. From my vantage point, Maldef, representing a number of individual DACA recipients, intervene. So New Jersey and Maldef have for years themselves been there to help make sure that the court has a, all the complete evidence about DACA and about its legality. All right, so it was stayed, the case was stayed um, while the Supreme Court was considering the case, because right, if the Supreme Court had gone the other way, it would have made this case irrelevant. So, you know, to conserve energy and judicial resources, they they waited. That's one of the reasons it's been around as long. All right, the same day that you get the Supreme Court decision, this judge comes back into action and says, "Okay, great, we're back at it, folks. I want to see you all at the end of July. Let's talk about wrapping this case up." I.e. Um, get me, get me your, get me your arguments about why, what this Supreme Court decision means for the legality of DACA. What do you say? What do you say? And believe it or not, that's where we are, right? The, the, the parties. So, right, the, the state plaintiffs challenging DACA, the state defendants defending DACA, the plaintiff, in, the excuse me, the defendant intervenors also defending DACA. Everyone has filed their submissions. And the court held uh, an, an held oral argument on those final motions uh, back in late December, right before the holidays. The court held oral argument. As soon as the Biden administration issued, you all may remember that on day one, right, day one, President Biden signs an executive. Uh, it's an executive memo saying my administration supports like we will preserve 
Um, we will preserve and bolster DACA. Those aren't the exact words, but that's the that's the gist, right? Like we are going to preserve and make DACA better. Day one, so right, we've come all the way to January 20th. Um, the parties have let the judge in Texas know um, that that happened, and they asked for the court to wait to see what else the administration might do with regard to DACA. Well, you all know last Thursday, right, we got we got the text um, from the Biden administration, their bill. Now, it's just a bill, right? Like that's one thing that's also very much worth knowing and worth saying, right? Like it's exciting, it has interesting things. We can talk about what's in it and what's awesome about it, but it's not the law. Right. Like, don't let anyone tell you that you should be applying for things in that bill because it's not the law yet. Right. So just, you know, random note there. But but where we are is essentially waiting to see. I think I like you and, and anyone else. I'm waiting to see what, if anything, the Texas court might do. Um, and. What it highlights for me, I mean, we talked a little bit ago about uncertainty. I mean, the truth of the matter is that as as much good as DACA has done, certainly in the lives of individuals and in communities and families, it has never gotten rid entirely of the uncertainty that has to exist with DACA, right? Because it's never, it never was a permanent solution. It, it, it remains not a permanent solution. And I look at least for the legislation that's been introduced as like, right, those are supposed to be more permanent. Like that is about changing the law as opposed to relying on the good graces or, and I shouldn't say relying on the good graces of an administration. Cause again, I feel like that hides and occults the fact that ultimately immigrant youth fought hard to get this in the first place. Absolutely. Um, and I want to circle back to that idea that how important and how critical it is for students to get involved. And, um, and I know we're wrapping up um, because you have been just so generous with your time and I've learned so much through you and, and I cannot convey how appreciative and how grateful we are to advocates like yourself and the legal minds like yourself and our, our attorneys at Immigrant Legal Defense who are day in and day out working towards a solution. And so, um, you know, speak to our students and our audience and, you know, what advice do you have for DACA recipients interested in getting involved to protect DACA? What, what advice would you give to all of us, but particularly our DACA recipients? I feel like I should start by saying simply what a privilege and honor of my career it has been to get to work with DACA recipients. Um, and I, and I, sort of start there because the, the beauty and the inspiration that I get from these folks comes very simply from the fact that as an attorney, it is easy to get jaded about and to get too focused on what the courts can do, what arguments they'll accept, what they don't want to hear, and, and what I've come to truly appreciate and be taught by the DACA recipients and dreamers that, that I've gotten to interact with over the years is that there is such strength in organizing and strength in numbers. Um, and so to that end, the, the advice I'd, I'd really give, um, and, and to dreaming big, because that's the point, and so focused on what can be done through a court, um, 
DACA recipients and like, you know, forgive the, forgive invoking the, you know, the word dream again and again, but, but it is, it's like folks dream bigger and, and are comfortable with the fact that the courts may not get us what we need, but we can get us what we need. Um, and so in, in that way, the, the best piece of advice that I have for your students is to find those organizing spaces, right? Find the people who are doing that work, who are pushing, who are trying to push to make sure that that our community, that right, that our communities get what they deserve and not just, um, and, and which may be more than people are willing to offer. But to, but to find those spaces that that are dreaming big and are and are working to push to get more. Araceli, it has been an honor talking to you, and it just reminds me. And um, one of the things that I want to leave our audience with is dream big, and really, it's going to take all of us to work together alongside folks like yourself. Um, and our students, our parents, it, it's going to take all of us. Araceli, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, is there anything last that you want to um, add to, to our conversation today? Gabby, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, for any folks who might be listening that are DACA recipients or DACA eligible, I'll just note that um, the folks the folks from the Bataya Vidal case have up a website for the class um, that is www.dacaclassaction.com. Um, we're updating it as things as things move or change from the court. If anyone has not gotten a notice from the federal government, if anyone received a one-year EAD and you have not received a notice from the federal government telling you and, and extending your EAD for an extra year, please let us know. Um, if you have a, uh, if you have been denied advanced parole, please let us know. And if right, like let us know if you are finding that the government is not complying with the court's orders. Absolutely, it should be. <laughs> it should, yeah. And can you ex um, can you tell us the website again? Certainly, um, it's uh, dacaclassaction.com. Perfect. And we will link those um, on our websites um, for those listening to the podcast as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Araceli, for joining us. And I'm really excited that you were able to join us today and share your experiences, um, personal and professional, in regards to DACA and your work with undocumented youth. To the audience, thank you for joining us on this second episode of Conversations That Matter. We hope you found this information helpful and resourceful. And if anybody would like to receive services from our organization, Immigrant Legal Defense, please reach out to your dream coordinator at your CSU campus to make an appointment to talk to one of us. Or you can also visit our website at www.ild.org. Thank you and see you next time here on Conversations That Matter. Mm -hmm.